Hello and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear dance writer Cheryl Osula interview Corda Ballet member and choreographer Miles Thatcher. This interview was recorded on March 9th, 2017, before a triple bill performance of Helgi Thomason's trio, Miles Thatcher's Ghost to the Machine, and Christopher Wilden's Within the Golden Hour. Hope you enjoy. So my guest today, of course, is a familiar face to many of you. Uh, he has been a member of the company for the last eight years. And along the way, he has managed to choreograph 14 ballets. <laughs> Thanks for keeping count, Cheryl. <laughs> Three of them for San Francisco Ballet. He did one gala piece and two repertory works uh, for the company. Um, he also created two contemporary pas de deux uh, for San Francisco Ballet dancers to perform at the um, international competition for the Eric Brun Prize, uh, two years running. And I have to say that our dancers won, just saying. Um, <laughs> In 2014-15, he was selected for the, hang on, I have to read the name, uh, the Rolex Mentor and Protégé Arts Initiative. I always get that wrong. Um, he was selected by um, American Ballet Theater uh, choreographer Alexei Rutmansky, uh, who he worked with for a year, and that was a great honor. And he was nominated uh, for an Isadora Duncan Award for Best Choreography for his 2015 ballet for San Francisco Ballet Manifesto. So he's, you know, a little accomplished. <laughs> so, um, Miles, I want to start our chat today by having you give us a kind of a sense of everything that's been going on prior to this premiere because um, it's not just like you were getting a ballet ready to go. So in, if you can take us back to the like a week or two weeks prior to the launch, you had a ballet opening in New York, yeah. <laughs> you had a trainee performance. Tell us yeah. about this. Um, I'm, I'm finding it, it, it happens uh, within my choreographic year. It's kind of when it rains, it pours. So all of, all of the exciting things that happen always kind of fall within a six-week period, um, which is, you know, awfully exciting as long as I can stay sane. Um, so to, uh, March, I think March 15th, I finished a ballet for the trainee program for the San Francisco Ballet School called Panorama. And um, 
we showed that first at the student matinee in the Opera House, um, and now, just this past Friday, they performed it at a festival in Paris with seven other um, world-renowned ballet schools. We were the only school invited from uh, the States, and um, I heard they did well. Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't, couldn't go see them because I'm you know, here uh, doing some other exciting things. Um, and then last, was it last Thursday? I can't keep track anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Joffrey Ballet premiered um, a ballet of mine called Body of Your Dreams at Lincoln week Center. Week before. Week before last Thursday. Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, <laughs> um, so they performed at um, the Coke Theater in Lincoln Center. Uh, so I got to fly out for one night to see, to see them perform. Um, and they were really brilliant and took, took care of the ballet quite well. Um, and then I came back and uh, danced in Swan Lake. And um, The next day. The next day. <laughs> yeah, I, our, our flight was delayed, so I got in at 3 a.m. And then came and did two shows. So as long as no one from the audience noticed, I think... It was okay. I was there. You did good. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then that next Wednesday, we um, opened uh, Ghost in the Machine, and I also um, have been dancing in Swan Lake and in Within the Golden Hour. Principal um, role, by the way. Yeah. So uh, it's been a busy time, but I feel like for all of us, April is always a busy time because, you know, we're mid-season, we're, we're preparing the next programs as we're performing programs at night, so, um, you know, every, everybody here is working hard, so, yeah. That's, that's a bit of a diverse set of things going on at once, though, yeah. I must say. <laughs> so if you're just coming in, I'm chatting with corps de ballet dancer and choreographer Miles Thatcher. Um, so, you know, people are here to see Ghost in the Machine today. Um, uh, I'm not very good at explaining uh, anything about the title, so I would like you to talk a little bit about the idea of where that came from and, and what it means in the context of this ballet. Okay. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I just love the name. I have to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it, um, it's suiting in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think it's attractive, which always helps in a ballet title. Um, but... Uh, I was, uh, I, I, I kind of stole it from uh, this book written in um, 1967 by Arthur Kostler, um, and it kind of explores a, a philosophical topic uh, called Ghost in the Machine. Um, but in the book, it really tries to explain um, kind of the, the why us ha as humans can't quite get it right. You know, we've been on this earth and, and we've, uh, we have all of this history to learn from and we still find ourselves in the same habits of self-destruction. And, um, um, so I, I, I think I was attracted to, uh, what do I want to say? How do I say this? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think, I don't know, in the ballet, there's a lot of, there are a lot of themes that um, are very present in my life, uh, like things that I, you know, I've struggled with or, or kind of common themes that I think us as humans can all relate to, just, you know, um, isolation, loneliness, love, aggression, community, compassion. Um, and, and I think within the ballet, um, 
we really, I really wanted to focus on community and kind of uh, the individual's relationship with a community, whether that's good or bad. Um, and, and it kind of starts in a stark place, a, a very combative place. And, and as we introduce um, each kind of individual thread of the, I, I guess I can call them characters or narratives in the ballet, um, things warm up and, and they all kind of grow to uh, connect. So, yeah, that's what I'll say about that for now. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely a strong sense of community, but also mm. of sort of people at first failing to make the right. connections yeah. they need to make. I, I think another, another um, kind of topic I wanted to explore is how um, kind of uh, how society can be contagious and how, how moods can be contagious within people. Um, and I think just even in today's political climate, you know, um, seeing, seeing, uh, having an example set of what behavior is okay and what behavior isn't okay. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that um, I think a lot of us in the States have just been struggling with a little bit is, is you know, what is human decency anymore? What, how, how can we hold ourselves accountable and, and, and who's setting the example and, and um, you know, how do we kind of maintain our integrity through a polarized environment? So that's just the, just the sense of um, being able to react from other people's examples is another topic, whether, whether negative, negatively or positive, positively is something I wanted to touch on with the piece. For those of you just coming in, I'm chatting with corps de ballet dancer and choreographer Miles Thatcher. So one of the things that that I find striking about this ballet is the fact that there's that there's a lot of what I would call very fresh movement. It's it's um, it's kind of takes you by surprise. It's movement that you don't quite know where it's going when it starts, which is I think wonderful. Um, there are a lot of very imaginative lifts and things, tableaus. So I wondered if you could take one example, just pick, pick one, um, and tell us, when you go in the studio, how does that come about? So do you have, you say, okay, say, I'm going to do this lift. I have this basic idea that it should be circling or it should go high to low or low to high or whatever and work from there and experiment? Or do you have a much more concrete idea of what to do? I might, I might give you two examples, Cheryl, if that's okay. Um, I think within, within the terms of pas de deux work, I like to come in with more of a broader idea of what the structure of the pas de deux should look like and, like you said, what, what, what the steps should feel like and also emotionally what the intention is. Um, so sometimes I come in with concrete ideas and they work right away. And sometimes I come in with ideas and the dancers kind of just look at me and they're like, there is no way we are doing that. Um, but, but I think that's what's really great about this group of dancers. Um, I've worked with most of them before. Um, they know me and my work and my vision. I know them. I see them every day in company class. We dance together. Um, and they are so open and willing to try new things especially when they seem like they might not work at first. Um, there's, a lot of, there are, there's a lot of lifting in. Um, it's uh, Jennifer Stahl and Luke Ingham in that pas de deux. 
Um, and between the two casts, because we have you know two first casts, I like to say, um, you it it reads completely differently, and you'll get a different sense of what the dance is, um, which I really enjoy trying to uh, not replicate the movement <clears throat> from cast to cast rather than try and just bring out what the individu individual dancers can bring to the movement and the piece. So in general, it, it should say the same thing, but there are a lot of um, decisions that can be made that are differently, so you'll kind of get a different experience depending who you're watching. Um, and then another, okay, part two, here we go. And then, <laughs> and then another, uh, another thread I wanted to look at in this ballet was, was uh, trying to transfer whatever narrative we have um, between the individual uh, kind of soloists and principals and part of the dancers. Um, so there are a lot of moments where, where the spotlight will be passed from dancer to dancer. I think there are three moments. The first one is in the third movement, um, and it's, it's a kind of all about anxiety, and, and you'll see the soloist man kind of be swept, kind of pulled away by another dancer and some uh, woman behind him replacing his spotlight and so on and so on. And then the second time is after the pas de deux I was talking about. Um, there's, there's just a moment of embrace that kind of travels across the stage and, and we refocus from the pas de deux couple, or from um, the male in the pas de deux to the female in the pas de deux. And then the last, the last moment is what I like to so fondly call the Rolodex. Um, which My is favorite. Cheryl's favorite, uh, which is... Um, I think really when when we when the group uh, really starts to find a cohesion and, and a connection, and um, we kind of see see we kind of just flip through the characters we've kind of seen in the ballet, and, and you should be able to if you know what a Rolodex is, you should be able to spot that moment. Yeah. So so it sounds like you you go in with a clear sense of. Definitely the the emotion, mm -hmm. the the cons the concept, yeah. and the dynamics, right. and then you sort of figure out the steps when you combine those three. Yeah, I always if I come if I you know the things that I have the clearest idea on when I go in the studio, those are the things I always find that are the least exciting to me because I think um, my dancers, all of these dancers are so brilliant, and to be able to utilize their brains in in rehearsal time to make something that, you know, none of us separately could come up with. Um, I think that's really where the magic lies in the studio. Uh, and that's what I love about this art form is it's so collaborative um, that whenever you're feeling stuck, you have sounding, you have all of these different sounding boards to really kind of uh, heighten what you're trying to say. And, uh, um, and especially with these, this group of dancers, they really know how to to you know, invest themselves in, in the piece, and I just feel really grateful for all of the work that they've put into this as well. So um, the other day you said something that I thought was really interesting and we didn't have a chance to follow up on it. Um, but you, you talked about being a young child and wanting to make dances. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember who you said it was, but somebody basically shot you down. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have two questions. 
How did you respond to that? Did you just sort of get deterred and decide, oh, you know, oh, well? Or did you get more determined? And was there a particular thing that you saw that made you want to make dancers, or was it just a general evolution? I think, well, I think my initial reaction to that probably was, you know, I'll show you, because when you're a kid, you know, you don't really realize um, just all that goes into finding success. You know, a lot of it, of course, is talent, but there's also opportunity and and facility and being in the right place in the right time. And so, but, but I remember kind of just brushing that off and, and, uh, feeling determined. Um, but I think that, I think, yeah, I think the the harder thing for me was, was it, it just takes such vulnerability to put your work out there to be judged. And, um, and especially the first few times, because you really don't quite have a sense of what you're doing, and you don't know the craft. So you're, uh, it's it's um, it feels like a deeply personal thing for me to show, um, and for people to critique and be very vocal about whether they like it or not. Um, so that's just something that you know over the years you kind of have to get used to. And of course, that's I think what we all love about art is not everybody has to love everything. And it's really just finding ways to connect with other people. That's what, that's what I love about art the most is, is um, you know, I can really tell when somebody resonates with what I make. Um, and there's just no better feeling than understanding each other. Um, and what was your second part of your question? <laughs> the, Sorry. Oh, my God. That's okay. I shouldn't ask two-part questions. That's not really fair. <laughs> um, so the other part was just, was there a particular thing that you had seen that, that made you decide you wanted to create dances, or was it just an exposure to dance in general? You know, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it was exposure to dance, but a lot was, um, uh, I think, my knowledge of music. My dad's a musician. Um, he's an early early music musician, so uh, a lot of Baroque and Renaissance, uh, you know, he would always, like, strum the lute (laughs) to put me to sleep, you know, which, it's not a boring instrument, I swear, but, um, yeah, and we like to joke that we both kind of, you know, wore tights for our job, because he would do kind of some Renaissance fairs and everything, Um, but (laughs) um, I think I I was really... uh, interested in how music was structured and how that could be represented through dance. Because I remember even, you know, listening to the Nutcracker Suite when I was first starting ballet classes. And I think it was like the Spanish dance, like realizing that the oboe had a different melody than the clarinet or something like this. And I was like, oh, and this step can go here because of that. And somebody can be doing something different. So it's like very rudimentary ways of structuring a dance. But um, I remember the discovery of that was very exciting to me. And, and I think I'm very, like, I have a very pattern-oriented brain, which, you know, you can always see in my choreography because cause it's a, yeah, there's a lot going on sometimes. Um, but uh, that's always, you know, I, I kind of see what I liked back then and then see how I've been developing that now. Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of interesting to check back in with what really struck me. Well, um, yeah, you do have a, a brain that likes patterns, and that shows in your ability to structure a ballet and 
and you know just the way you can you can move bodies on and off stage in interesting ways and i do hope that whoever that was that shot you down is well aware of your career <laughs> so um I, I do want to open this up to you for questions in just a moment. I, I had one more thing that I that I would like you to touch on, and that is, um, you, you tend to like to create your own musical score by choosing music that speaks to you, and then and then arranging it so that it has the kind of dynamic flow that you want. Um, you even did that when you used Bach for a manifesto because you you pieced portions of two different scores together. So could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what's the advantage to that in your opinion as opposed to using a complete score? Um, you know, why do you tend to work this way? What does it give you? Um, I, think, I, I think the hardest thing about finding music is, is the arc it needs for dance in this kind of, you know, 30 to 50 minute period. Um, because of course you want, you know, a good beginning and a good ending and, um, uh, it needs, you know, it needs to find some sort of journey. I, I always like to create pieces that have some sort of journey in them. Um, because I, I tend to, to start with, you know, what a, a, some sort of emotional intention in the work, even though it is, you know, very abstract. Um, so I think the advantage is to really be able to, to kind of craft, um, what the audience is going to experience, um, especially, and and kind of you know keep people awake a little bit because sometimes <laughs> contrast is really your best friend when you're um, when you're creating a creating a ballet and if you know if you have a 15 minute you know long beautiful symphonic something like sometimes I find it hard or personally I find it hard to to keep to 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 keep the eye from kind of just glazing over. Um, so that's kind of why, that's one reason I like to, to kind of curate my own experience through music, just solely for, for the right journey to take. Um, yeah. And you, you, you've used minimalist music before. Michael Nyman is, is a little bit, I guess we would say, a little fuller than most minimalists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, why, why this particular music this time? I, I liked, I thought, um, so there are, I think there are seven, seven pieces of music, and I think they all have a very strong emotional, um, they warrant a, a very strong emotional response, and, and all a very different emotional response. Um, but yet, I don't find the emotion to be overpowerly indicative of what you should feel, um, which gives me as a choreographer a little bit of room to kind of um, hone in what that emotion should be. Um, so, I, and I think in general, uh, minimalist music kind of lends itself to dance. I know some people hate it, but you know, I, I just love it. I can't, I can't, you know, I think, I think it, it lends it to dance just because there is a familiarity to it. So you can make, take more risks with your choreography, but, um, but I found this score fulfilling because it didn't feel like it was just a blank white page that I can fill with my ideas. Like I, I do feel like the score really contributes to the energy of the piece and the and the kind of like the emotional intentions. So that's what drew me to these seven pieces. Great, thanks. All right, we are going to take some questions. Yes. 
who are some of the contemporary choreographers whose works you look forward to dancing? Um, definitely Bill Forsyth when he, when he was here. I, the thing I really appreciate about him is that, I mean, first of all, he's a genius, and how can you not appreciate that? Um, but he's also really built his process um, in order to empower the dancers. Uh, and that, and I can tell, seeing him work in the studio, that's what he's most fascinated in, is finding the key to unlock the best thing he can in the dancer. And I think, I think that's um, just brilliant. I really, I, I really think... Uh, that connection between choreographer and dancer is is where I would like to be. So I really look up to him, not only for his choreography, but his process. Um, Yuri Pasikov is so much fun to work with. It's always uh, such a such a journey from the beginning to the end because there are moments of chaos. Um, but he is so incredibly passionate and committed to what he does and. Um, and he also has such a unique vocabulary that it has taken me a few years to realize how much I've actually stolen from him accidentally. You know, I'll look back on a ballet that I've done and I'm like, oh no, oh no, I <laughs> thank you, Yuri. You know, even if it's just sensations, even if it's not clear steps, um, um, somebody who I haven't worked with yet who I really would love to is Crystal Pite. I think she has a really unique unique vision in the dance world. Um, and also just from what I hear sh and what I can you know, gather from YouTube and everything is that um, she's just a really thoughtful um, and nuanced and, um, again, process-oriented artist. Uh, yeah, so those are some people that inspire me. Yeah. You don't need to worry about borrowing stuff. George Balanchine did it, and he said it was okay. Yeah, I figure. A tondu is a tondu, right? Yes. How did you become a choreographer? What, was there a particular process for that? So I think this is a question that a lot of the ballet world is trying to figure out. Um, just because it is so important to keep people interested in making dance and especially having different voices and different minorities and different types of people creating dance so, so the audience doesn't just get one perspective of dance. I think a lot of it is, of course, you know, there's talent and desire in there, but a, a lot of it is also opportunity to create. And... Um, what was really great about the trainee program at, in the San Francisco Ballet School is every year they have a choreographic workshop. So all of the trainees are required to choreograph something and um, uh, on their peers. And of course, it's like terrifying, as I said at first, because, you know, it's really kind of bearing your soul. Um, but from there, Helgi Thomason, who's our artistic director, saw something in me and kind of um, decided to nurture me with opportunities, um, but he still was good about kind of, I think, the, I think the most important thing is, is dancers and studio time, so you can really develop your own voice. Um, but so later on, uh, after I started choreographing a bit, um, I had a, I, the Rolex mentorship program that we had kind of touched on earlier, uh, I had a year-long mentorship with Alexi Rotmansky, who's the artistic, or artist in residence at, um, in American Ballet Theater. So that was, you know, I think, I think 
mentors are a tricky they're a, it's a it's a tricky place because it because it um you don't want to basically replicate what your mentor is doing you really want to find a relationship where um you can maintain your own voice and i th- and i think he did a really great job with me about trying to you know find my perspective and and just clarify what i was trying to say rather than impose his own craft onto my vision um so i thought yeah i thought that was definitely you know it was definitely scary and a lot of you know pushed me out of my comfort zone and there's a lot of opportunity for growth in there but i i think it really helped me i think it opened up a lot of a lot of things in me and um allowed me to see dance in a different way most importantly um which is you know i think always beneficial i think we have time unfortunately only for one more um yes <laughs> some great dentist stories there. Yeah. Um, okay another question here What is my, your my favorite, favorite bassoon, please. I I can't even answer that. I, um, you know, I, we, I, I think my colleagues, we sort of live in the moment. I live in the moment. Uh, um, like tonight, I mean, I, I can't tell you which one I like the most. Um, I, I like the piece I'm playing at the moment, pretty much. That's true. I really feel that. I can tell you what I hate. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's easier. <laughs> now I'm intrigued. Um, here, yeah. Um, from a musical technique point of view, mm-hmm. who is the most difficult composer to play with? Who's the most difficult composer to play technically? Um, well, last week it was Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> this week it's Stravinsky. Um, Every composer, for instance, the Frankenstein was was um, was a technical nightmare. It was a monster. I had never. I mean, there were more black notes on the page. You could barely see the page. We were playing so fast and scrambling around for notes. You didn't write in the key. They were all accidental. So your your brain is up, your head is about to explode by the end of that. Um, that was difficult. Then there's the difficulty of, say, the opening of Rite of Spring. It's one note. It's one note. But no one else is playing, and it's at the top of your instrument, and, you know, you're, you're hanging in the wind. <laughs> and that's hard. <laughs> so who knows, you know, what's, what's hard? It's, um, you know, um, I'll put it this way. If, if it's not hard, then you're doing something wrong. Um, okay, we've got a few more here. Yeah. I just wondered how you ended up playing the bassoon. If you wants to know why, how I ended up playing the bassoon, I said, well, they ran out of oboes. In <laughs> junior high, I said, here, take this. I said, what the heck is that thing? I said, okay, whatever. <laughs> a very good answer. Um, back over here, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, You've seen my bassoon section over the last 10 years, and it changes up, changes up. 
And um, I've had, I've actually played a number of years with my son. He's my second bassoon player, and he's my second bassoon player in the opera for about four years. He's moved on, and, and Sean Jones, he was, uh, he came out of Colorado. He played with Colorado Symphony, and uh, he wasn't a student, but uh, we hired him. And uh, my current second bassoon player, my tenured second bassoon player, Patrick Johnson Whitty, um, um, we're, we're like the long ranger in Tano, basically. Yeah, we're, we're like glue. Uh, I love him, and he's a master, master. Thanks for master. listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts, educational programming, and other information, check out sfballet.org. Oh, yeah, this is my family. This is my house. <laughs> You're kidding. Welcome to my house. <laughs> the uh, gentleman was just saying that dancers come and go, and it's musicians one, like Ruth have been here forever. It's the one current in the opera. It's the chorus and the orchestra is always the, always the, um, the, the one thing that stays, you know. Yeah, it's great. I think we have time for just one more. This has been great. All right, yeah. She's talking about the, the conductors that have led the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra and how you um, have been with, with them, dealt with them, adapted to them. Well, yeah, every, every conductor um, will have a... Uh, here, it's a it's, it's pretty stable conductor situation where we have a Mar- Martin. Um, but... We're pretty much trained to to deal with whoever on the podium, and we've been pretty blessed to have uh, Dennis and Martin, and, and um, it's a good, it's a good situation because we, even though he's our, our maestro, he's still like part of our the family, and we work really well together. We understand each other. Um, I call it breaking the conductor code, and once you figure out the code. We got it. You know, it's a code that it, everybody is different. So you sort of break that conductor code and you go, oh, I got you. You know, and, and a lot of the conductors, it's about trust. A conductor will just point to you. He's not giving you direction. He'll just point, say, do your thing. They're trusting you to do your thing, literally. Say, go for it. And um, that's the best. I wish we had more time. We've run out. So before we actually say our goodbyes, I want to um, thank Rufus Olivier, who is the principal bassoonist with our orchestra. Thank you. And I know that uh, in this evening's performance, we will all be really listening because you've let us know that the bassoon will be prominent in all three pieces. That was a stupid move, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And I know that you're going to enjoy this evening's performance. Thank you so much. Thank you.